Our scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 4. You can find this in your bulletin on page 11, and it will also be projected above. 1 Peter 4, verse 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join in do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Don. Okay, uh, kids, I mentioned your, your Trinity Kids bulletin earlier that was in that bag. You can grab it now, and there's a spot to jot down these three things that I want you to listen specifically for. Uh, the first is a, an illustration about the first day of school. Secondly, um, I want you to listen for a line from the song, I Shall Not Want. And then finally, uh, an illustration from The Office. So, first day of school, I shall not want in The Office. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we come to God's word together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us because you love us so much. And so we pray that by your spirit this afternoon, working with your word, we would come to behold Jesus, that we would know him more, that we would love him, that we would be drawn to him, that we would see his beauty and his glory. And we pray this all in his name, amen. Kids, I know uh, most of you right now are on spring break. I know... Many of you aren't here because of that. You're not hearing me say that because you're not here because uh, it's spring break. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to think back uh, to the first day of school. Um, and that is a day that can be incredibly exciting and at the same time incredibly frightening. So it's, it can be really exciting if you're going back to a school that you know, maybe that you've been to in years past, you know friends, you've got people there that you know you're gonna see. And so you're excited to see them again. But on the other hand, if you maybe have moved to a new place, or maybe you're just going to a new school, or it's to a school where you don't know as many people, it can be incredibly frightening as well. And so as you, you come into that school, you, you're thinking a number of things. There are a number of questions going through your head. Like, uh, who am I gonna sit with in class? 
is anybody going to talk to me at all? Or am I going to be the one who, who's not being talked to? Uh, and then maybe the most frightening thing is, who am I going to sit with at lunch, right? Because even if I know people in school, it may be that I don't have lunch with them, and I'm going to have to figure out who I'm going to sit with. And so I, I think then, who am I going to hang out with at, at recess? And that the big question that, that I'm asking is, is anybody actually going to like me and be my friend? And that's a really uh, tough set of questions to have to wrestle with. And, and here's the bad news, but it's real bad news, it's honest bad news. And it's that those questions and those fears don't just magically go away when you get older. <laughs> um, what does happen is that they begin to look a little different. And so the truth is that your parents, your teachers, your coaches, even maybe like your pastors, uh, still struggle with those same fears. They take a different form, but they're still there. And here's what's interesting. Um, that is true even of people that we would say are really successful. So a couple of examples of this. One, uh, Tom Arnold, a comedian, he says this. I do comedy to have something out there so people will like me. It's the reason behind almost everything I do. Jerry Rice, maybe uh, arguably the best wide receiver in NFL history. He holds most NFL receiving records. This is what he said, though, in his Hall of Fame induction speech. My single regret about my career is I never took the time to enjoy it. I was always working. I was afraid to fail. The fear of failure is the engine that has driven me my entire life. The reason they never caught me from behind is because I ran scared. People always are surprised how insecure I was. The doubts, the struggles, it's who I am. And so uh, we call that uh, different things, that feeling, uh, a number of different things. Sometimes we talk about it as peer pressure, um, insecurity. We talk about it as, as people-pleasing or codependency. But uh, one of the words or phrases that the Bible uses to describe that is something called the fear of man. But here's the thing. Whatever we decide to call it, we can find that all over our lives. And it's this, this basic sense of wanting so badly for other people to think well of us that, that in the end, we almost end up being controlled by other people's opinions. So that when you have the approval or the affection or somebody else thinking well of you, it feels so good. But then the second that that starts to waver, maybe it's because you, you acted weirdly or you said something awkward at some point, and you start to question whether that person is really, really likes you or thinks that well of you, then you start to feel wrecked inside. And I think um, one of the places where, where we might feel this the most is in following Jesus. So there are some areas of your life where, where following Jesus comes a little bit easier, places where it, it's, it's uh, encouraged and expected, like here, for example, right? Or in your community group, uh, or maybe at RUF, or maybe it's in youth group or something like that. But, but there could be that there are these other social groups in your life where it is really hard to follow Jesus. It could be uh, with your coworkers. It could be with your classmates or, or, or maybe even other parents at your school. It could be fraternity brothers or sorority sisters. It could be clients or it could be potential clients whose business that you're really trying to get. Could be your boss, could be your supervisor. And here's the thing, what happens is that you bump up against this tension between faithfully following Jesus on the one hand and this desire to fit in and to be liked on the other. And I, uh, I feel like I need to just give a special shout out here to all of you middle school students, 
to all of you high school students and to you college students as well. Because I think uh, that stage of life may be the place to feel this tension the most. It is so hard to be in that place, to faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of your friends and peer groups. Here's the thing though. That tension, that that tension that we feel is something that God's people have felt all the way back to the moment that sin entered the world. And so because of the circumstances of Peter's audience, they really feel this tension in an acute way. And so if you remember, um, Peter's called them sojourners and exiles. So that the reason he calls them that is that they're living in a place where their neighbors and their, the world around them do not share their faith in Jesus. And in some, case, uh, in some cases, the, those around them are actually hostile to their faith in Jesus. And so they're, they're living in this new, living this new life in a new place, and that's incredibly difficult to do. So it's almost as though they, they live in this world, but they don't belong to this world. Have you ever felt that way? My guess is that, that, you, that you probably have. That it's this sense of being in exile. And so a lot of what Peter is saying in the whole of his letter is about that very circumstance. But in this passage in particular, he focuses specifically on it. And so what does he say? What does Peter say to them and to us who live in that tension? Well, what he does is he points them to their identity in Christ, their new identity that they have in him. And so what he says is, you have new life in Christ. And what happens is as you lean into that and as you embrace that new life, it's actually gonna change the way that you live in exile. And so the, the question that we've been asking and answering of every passage as we make our way through 1 Peter is this, how do we live faithfully in the world? So here's what we see today. We live faithfully in the world by embracing our new life in Christ in the face of pressure to do otherwise. By embracing our new life in Christ in the face of pressure to do otherwise. So here's the question I wanna answer from this passage. It's how do we do that? How do we live out this new life in Christ in the face of real social pressure. Three ways, here's the first. We live out our new life in Christ by arming ourselves with the joy that is set before us. Say that again, by arming ourselves with the joy that is set before us. And so what Peter does as he starts this passage is something that he's done over and over again in this letter. What he does is he makes a connection between the pattern of Jesus's life and then the pattern of our life. So verse one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And so once again, uh, again, he's done this many times, he, he he's points to Jesus' suffering as this sort of example or paradigm for the life of a Christian. And so back in chapter two, he says, you are to follow in his footsteps. But the image that he uses here, the, the way he describes it here, is, is to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, that you need to approach your suffering in your life in the same way that Jesus approached suffering in his life. And so he says, we're to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. And so if we're gonna do that, uh, there are a couple of questions we need to ask. One is this, why is it that Jesus suffered in the first place? Why did he suffer? And so a number of answers that Peter gives uh, to that question. One is that he suffered the penalty for our sin for us. He died as our substitute. He also mentions that, that he died, uh, that, that he suffered in order to identify with us in our suffering. But here's what he says specifically in this section. 
Uh, Jesus also suffered just because he was being obedient to his father. He was doing his father's will and he suffered because of it. He was maligned, he was persecuted, he was slandered, and he suffered because of it. And it wasn't at all because he, he had done anything wrong or that he had deserved any of this mistreatment. It was completely because he was living obedience in obedience to God's will. And this is actually some of what Paul says in, in Philippians 2. This is what we were, we've used as our confession of faith. He says there that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so the point is this. By, by obeying God's will, Jesus suffered. That's part of why he suffered. So that's one question. Here's the other question then. How did he endure that suffering? Or to, to state it awkwardly in Peter's words and to not end a sentence with a preposition. With what way of thinking did he arm himself? We're gonna ask it this way. How did he face that unjust, undeserved suffering on the cross? And maybe we could even put this a little more pointedly. How did he endure that suffering for following his father's plan without in that moment assuming that his father had rejected him? without assuming that his father didn't actually love him because if he really did, he would never let him endure these sorts of things because that is the temptation. Well, here's how the author of Hebrews answers that question. This is chapter 12, verse one. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And see, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus went into that suffering armed with this sort of confident expectation of the joy that was actually going to come on the other side of that suffering. And so the, the, there was this hope that he had of this unimaginable future joy and glory on the other side of his suffering. And that was present even as he's crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew that even in that moment, the joy of the resurrection that was coming. He knew that the, the joy of this world being made new that would come through his suffering. And he knew the joy of rescuing the bride that he loved and longed for with all of who he was. It was that, that joy that enabled him to face suffering. He knew that his suffering wasn't wasted. He knew that, that, that there was real joy that would come in obeying his father's will, even, even with the suffering that that would lead him into. And so here's what Peter's saying. He's saying that same thing's gonna be true for you. And so in the language of verse two, he says, as you live not for your own selfish passions, but instead for the will of God, you are actually going to experience suffering as well. And we've got to acknowledge that. We've got to recognize that that's true. Part of that suffering is going to come by saying no to things that you desperately want to say yes to. You're going to be refusing to act on, on these uh, basic lusts and basic desires of your own heart that feel so natural to you and that feel so powerful. You're going to end up placing the good of other people above the satisfaction of your own selfish desires. And so if you look at verse three, you get this list of what some of those desires and passion, uh, passions are. So here's what Peter says. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, 
passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Okay, so why the list of these things specifically? He doesn't say why, but I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that these were the exact kind of things that would have been really common in Peter's day at these other pagan festivals all around him. And so part of, uh, part of what Peter's saying here is that this was, it was probably the case that some of these new Christians in the church had been a part of these sorts of things. And so that, that, that's one reason that, that Peter mentions this. Here's the other, though. I think these are the kinds of things that we run to, or maybe more often is the case, at least fantasize about running to for relief, for pleasure, for, for, for some sense of joy. And so here's the tension. If the choice is between saying no to these things and then being maligned for it, which is what we'll talk about in a moment, or just giving in to, in to them, then that decision seems pretty easy in one way. And so here's what Peter says in response. His point is to say, that is not who you are anymore. You now have been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And here's the deal. Life with him that you now have is what is ultimately going to satisfy your heart in a way that nothing else can or will. And so one of the hymns that we sing pretty often is, I, I shall not want. And so there's a phrase in there. This is actually part of the chorus that we sing over and over again is this. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. In other words, by God's grace, what happens is you taste the grace and the goodness of the Lord to you in Christ, your desires actually begin to change. And so that, that, that's part of what Peter's getting at in this really weird phrase in verse one where he says, for whoever has, suffered, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that through some uh, process of suffering, you're gonna come out perfect on the other side or something like that. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the, the, the Christian who is so convinced of the goodness, of the grace, of the joy of the Lord, that he or she is actually willing to suffer because of it, is a person who is in some sense done with sin. Let me say it this way. In other words, if you're willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus, then that is the kind of heart that is ready to be done with sin to some degree. You've at least seen the, 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 the vacuous, empty promises of sin and idolatry. And you're saying, I'm done with that. I'm done with it. And you do that because you've tasted the joy that Jesus alone can give. So that's the, the, the first way that we live out our new life in Christ. It's by believing that Jesus alone can bring the joy that our heart craves. So that's the first way. Secondly, we live out our new life in Christ by remembering our true judge by remembering our true judge. So here's what happens. People see these Christians in, in, uh, in Peter's audience who are no longer doing the things they used to. And so then how do they respond to that? Verse four, with respect to this, they are one, they're surprised when you do not join, join them in the same flood of debauchery. And then secondly, they malign you. And so um, there are parts of the Bible that are, that are kind of hard to apply, you know, to see how they map onto our situation. This isn't one of them, right? Uh, if you've been a Christian for, for any length of time, then you know that the, the kind of pressure that this, or the, the way this kind of pressure can feel. And, and this, is, uh, this is especially true if maybe you're here as a new Christian. 
where, where you have tasted the, the riches of the grace of God for you in Jesus. And because of that, you, you've begun to say no to some things in your life that you, you used to say yes to a whole lot. Uh, but the thing is, is that you've got friends and classmates and coworkers and family members who maybe see this new change in your life. And so at first they're surprised. They're surprised that you're no longer doing the sorts of things that you used to do. But what can happen in some cases is that that surprise can turn into a little bit of resentment. Then maybe at some point it, return, it turns into some sort of full-blown anger at you or judgmentalism because it seems like you're just self-righteous in their face. And so what can happen then and what it can look like is everything from, from maybe just a little bit of making fun of you to, to eventually completely cutting you off. And again, that is really, really hard. And this might be obvious, but, but it's worth asking, why is it that that is so hard? Why is it so hard to face that kind of social pressure? Well, it, it's hard because I think when you begin to, to, to experience that kind of rejection, you're faced with this question. What or who is ultimately gonna rule my heart? Is it gonna be God, this God who is, has poured out and lavished his love upon me, or is it going to be what these other people think about me? And so the, the, the temptation in the face of that pressure is to allow the opinions of other people to in some sense then replace God in our lives. And again, Peter has a, a real specific circumstance in mind here, but, but that temptation, that basic temptation towards people pleasing is all over our lives. And here, here's how this works. It starts out with this desire for other people's approval. You want them to approve you, to affirm you in particular ways. That grows to a point where it starts to feel like you almost need it. Like it's something that you've got to have. And so in some sense, your life ends up being controlled by doing what you need to do in order to get the approval of other people. And so maybe the best example of this is Michael Scott from The Office, where he says this, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked, I enjoy being liked, I have to be liked, but it's not like a compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. So that, that's some of what it could look like. What might this look like maybe in some more specific ways, some little symptoms or things in your own life that might indicate this kind of people pleasing? So here's some possibilities. Uh, a number of these are from Ed Welch. I'm gonna frame it this way. You might be a people pleaser if you're overcommitted and you have a really hard time saying no to people because you're so afraid of disappointing them. You might be a people pleaser if one of your greatest fears is being viewed as a failure. You might be a pe people pleaser if you're always second guessing decisions you've made all because of what other people might think of you. Maybe you got it wrong. Maybe they're thinking less of you because of it. You might be a people pleaser if you avoid conflict at all costs. You don't wanna upset other people. You might be a people pleaser if you're often jealous of other people and you find yourself constantly comparing yourself to other people. So if you resonate with those, let's be honest, who does not resonate with those, then, then, then the danger is that people, to some degree, have replaced God in your heart. They are functionally ruling you. And so here's the question then, what do we do about that? 
What's the solution to that? Well, what Peter does is he calls us in this passage to, to, to orient ourselves towards God in such a way that we could say we are to worship God rather than worshiping people. We're to fear God rather than fearing people. This is some of what he's getting at in verses five and six. So verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here's what he's doing. He's saying to his audience, I want you to remember who the true judge and king really is. He is the one who is your Lord, the one who will judge the living and the dead. And it is before God that you will stand, not before other people. He's saying what ultimately matters is you're standing before the Lord. And here's the great news. You're standing before him is absolutely certain and secure if you've trusted in Jesus. And as you believe that to be true, you orient yourself to the true Lord, then that's actually gonna change the way that you handle this temptation to worship the opinions of other people. And then, uh, and then look at, at verse six. Again, this is a really weird verse, potentially confusing verse. Here's what he says. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So here's what he's saying. The dead are those Christians who have died in the Lord. They are those who have heard the gospel and have since died. They've trusted in Christ and have since died. And so it's possible here that, that what's happening is that one of the ways that Peter's audience is being maligned goes something like this. You know, you, you talk about this living hope, that Jesus is your living hope, and yet all of these people who have put their faith in this living hope have since died. And so what Peter is saying is that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, and yet right now they live in the spirit with God awaiting the resurrection. That's what he's saying in verse six. And so here's his point, that this true judge that you are orienting your life towards is the one who's given his life for you. He's the judge who has done everything necessary in order to draw near to you, to bring you close. Why? Because he loves you so much. And when you experience the, the, the fullness of God's love for you in Christ, then what begins to happen is you no longer go looking for that love in other people. What happens is, instead is that you're actually able to worship God and love people rather than worshiping other people and seeking something from them that they could ultimately never give to you. So that's the second way that we live out our new life in Christ, is by remembering our true judge. Thirdly, and finally, we live out our new life in Christ by embodying the gospel together, by embodying the gospel together. So what Peter says in verses seven through 11 is that we're to live out this new life in Christ as a community. It's something we do together. So look at verse seven. This frames this whole section. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Now, he is not saying that the end of the world is coming right now, okay? The end of all things is, is a phrase, it's another way to talk about uh, what Peter has said in chapter one, verse 20, which is where he refers to the last times. It's a way to talk about that the, the final stage of God's plan of redemption. It's this final stage of God's plan of redemption that came in the resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus' resurrection from the dead means that we are now living in this final stage of God's plan to rescue and redeem his people. And so here's what Peter's gonna go on to say. He's saying, live in light of that truth. 
live as this alternative community that now reflects and points towards this king and his coming kingdom. So how do we do that? Well, uh, verse seven, we do it by being self-controlled and sober-minded. We do that so that we're able to pray together as a community. Verse eight, we do it by loving one another earnestly. Why? He says, because love covers a multitude of sins, not a covering like Jesus' once for all covering, but a, but a covering in that love, especially when, it's, uh, when love is the response to somebody who's been wronged, it stops this sort of downward spiral that will come by responding to sin with sin. It's that kind of response that can tear apart a community. And so instead, love, he says, covers this multitude of potential sins that could take place. Verse nine, he says, it looks like showing hospitality to one another. He says, it looks like discovering and using your gifts in the church. We could put it this way to to, to, to summarize uh, seven through 11 here. In the language of our mission statement, we are to embody the gospel in our life together. Now, why would this be so important? And why would it be so important, especially for Peter's audience facing this pressure in exile? A couple of reasons. One is this. It's because the, the, the church is meant to be a place of refuge, of support and love for you. And, and that is so important, uh, especially if you feel like you're facing this sort of opposition and this pressure in all other areas of your life. The church should be a refuge for you. It should be the kind of place where you come and you actually experience God's love and grace for you. Because one of the ways that God's love and grace is meant to come to you is through his people. It's through one another. That's one of the reasons that Peter calls us to this. Here's the other reason, though, and why it's so important for us. It's because this is actually going to put God's glory on display in the world. So the end of verse 11, he says this, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, loving one another, showing hospitality to one another, serving one another with these gifts that God has given, puts on display the glory of the only one who can actually bring that about and make it possible. And so that our new life in Christ, embodied in our community, actually points to the truth and the beauty of Jesus himself. And that's actually where, where I want to leave us. See, the, the, the thing that is actually going to set you free from being enslaved to the opinion of others is what Thomas, Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. See, when, as Jesus actually becomes more beautiful, more desirable, more attractive, more compelling to you, then what begins to happen is that that desire for him actually outweighs all of these other desires for things that we shouldn't desire. So how does that happen? It happens as you fix your eyes upon Jesus. As you fix your eyes upon all of the ways in which he's revealed in scripture. But maybe we could say specifically in Lent, it's as we fix our eyes on Jesus's suffering for us. It's by looking to the cross. Because it's at the cross that you see that this overwhelming, almost unimaginable love and grace that Jesus has for you. And he's the one who offers himself to you, who invites you and calls you to come to him, to put your faith and your trust in him and to receive this love 
that surpasses any and all other loves that you could experience. Will you receive him? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has lavished this sort of love on us in and through your son. And Lord, we thank you for the ways that you are constantly nurturing a greater desire for him in our hearts. And so Lord, we pray that you would do more of that work. And that as we behold Jesus' beauty and glory, we would end up being a people who can love other people rather than needing them, rather than being controlled by them. And we would be instead set free to love. And we pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.